Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today we've got Guy Talk, and then I'm going to have Becky Pippert join me in hour two, so I'm looking forward to both hours. I always love when the guys assemble, and here they are. We've got Pastor Tom Parrish, Dr. Peter Kapsner, and Jeff Verdorn. That's the power panel today. So all you have to do is send over the questions. Whatever you have for us, we will take them on, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. 2484. There's always lots of good questions that come in, so don't hesitate. Send them early and often. If you like email, you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. If you like to uh, leave a longer question, you can do it there. Anyway, text line one more time, 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, good to Bill. Be here, Bill. Bill. It's like we've been doing this for a while today already. <laughs> yeah, we were participated in, in a little video project that it's going to be showing up on the Faith Radio Network this month. I don't think it's a surprise, but we're talking about forgiveness all month, which is a great topic. It was. It was funny. It was a little uh, uncomfortable having to be on camera, you know, for the, for the four of us it. knuckleheads uh, out there. But, it was, <laughs> but what a topic. I mean, it was really nice to be able to talk about that for 15 minutes from a variety of angles. Yeah. So what is one of your favorite stories? Maybe it's from a book or a movie or... A historical account. Do you have one that pops into your head? One that you find yourself repeating often? There's the long pause I look for. At almost every funeral that I do, I use from C.S. Lewis, where he talks about how the professors, where he was in England, you know, wanted to say Jesus was a great teacher, but Mm -hmm. this talk about God is ridiculous. And his quote on that, you know, that's the thing what we shouldn't say. And then he goes into a whole treatise on that. Probably one of the best statements I've ever heard, because he said, either he's a man, Jesus is a man on the level who thinks he's a poached egg, (laughs) or he's on the level of, you know, really the genius who he was. But he said, you can't have it both ways. I mean, either he was who he said he was, God, or he wasn't. But you can't parse the two. And I appreciate that because I think most people want to parse Jesus all the time. We want to make him in our image. We want to make him like us. Well, he would love the same people I love. He would do the same thing I would do. No, let's look at who the real Jesus is. And that's what C.S. Lewis was saying. And that's why I use that at every single funeral I do. And I have more people come up to me after the funeral and say, can I get a copy of that? That hit me pretty hard, what you were just saying. And I usually have copies made up now. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's in the same part of mere Christianity, correct me if I'm wrong, where he makes the liar, lunatic, or Lord argument. Yes, it's the one. Is it? Yeah. And, and that is, I, and I use that often in, in my classes where, you know, Jesus either was telling the truth or he was not telling the truth. Exactly. He claimed to be God. That's either true or it's not. If he knew that it was false, he's a liar. If it was false, but he didn't believe it to be false, he thought it was true, but it's actually not, well, that would make him a lunatic. Or the only other third option is it was true, he knew it was true, and 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 he was God in the flesh, and that means he is the Lord. And it, he says something like, write him off as a liar, you know, yep. or a lunatic, or fall down before him as the Lord that he but is. But let's not come with his patronizing nonsense. Exactly, you know? that's, that's the that's, one. I love that yeah. line. 
Yeah. And and Jesus didn't had no patronizing nonsense of being a great teacher. You know, he saw himself as God, and that's the way he displayed himself. Mm-hmm. I, I'm such a big Lord of the Rings guy, so I am thinking in terms of maybe a larger story at this point. But, yeah, I've returned to Lord of the Rings over and over again, and, and probably there's maybe three or four or five different anecdotes or, or sections of those stories that I, I just think that they speak to larger themes in which we all mm-hmm. can I, can find ourselves. And maybe my, one of my favorite stories out of all of those is that when this little hobbit Frodo has this ring of immense power and, and he shows up at sort of the center of power in Middle-earth and Rivendell, and he's surrounded by these dwarves and these elves and Gandalf, and, and uh, they're trying to figure out what to do with the ring. And all of these people that for all of their earthly power that they have are arguing over what to do with that ring and and who should take it and what should happen to it. And here's this little anonymous hobbit in the middle of it that that sort of cuts through all of this false power that's going around at the table. And he says, I will take the ring. He says, but I do not know the way. And and I just think there's so many people that um, we we tend to esteem and, and to look up to the people who are visible or in the public square of Christianity so often. And we say they're the ones that are really doing things that matter. But I think the world is full of hobbits, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, of people who who just feel a bit uncertain, but they have, they have this this immense courage and strength that, though hidden, uh, it really is often the center part of the kingdom. And and so I think it just it teaches me and reminds me over and over again about who really does matter in the kingdom. Uh, it's often not the people that are so publicly well-known. It's often just the simple daily courage of, of the hobbits among us. Mm-hmm. Peter, do you love the books and the and the movies as well? I do, okay. yeah. I mean, I, I grew up with only the books, okay. uh, and and uh, it was at a time when my attention span was a little longer than it is now because Jared Tolkien spends a lot of time building out these worlds. But I remember feeling that I was in an entirely different world and loved the books. And I thought that Peter Jackson did a great job with, yeah. with the faithful mm-hmm. re- representation in the movies as well. One of your top five movies? It's Lord my top. Yeah. It's your top. Those are my yeah, like that trilogy is my okay. top. We just had this conversation with my family over dinner the other night oh. about like top movies, favorite things, and, and that trilogy, the completeness of it, is my favorite. Okay, Jeff extended Lord. version. I'm, Wasn't I'm, there I'm, six? I'm, Wasn't there six movies? Then well, the, the Hobbit. Hobbits? Yeah, they, they did three in the Hobbit. They might have extended out the Hobbit a little beyond okay. its it, it, the, the pages of the book, but but I thought the three from the original Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, one of your top five movies. Oh, you know. Right in the green room before the show, we were talking about the Princess Bride. I think the world, is <laughs> the world is divided into people who like the Princess Bride and those who don't like Princess Bride. So I, that's got to be one of my top three. Yep. There's, yeah. You know, there's got to be some theological truth in Princess Bride someplace, right? I'll tell you, though, one of the best movies ever was Ben-Hur. And I'm a historian, so I looked into the history of that. And General Lou Wallace, who wrote Ben-Hur, was a non-believer. And he was a Civil War veteran. And after the war, he and uh, one of his good army buddies uh, were each married, and their wives were good friends, and the wives were believers. And they kept challenging them, do you know this Jesus? And they said, this is ridiculous. But they, they secretly agreed to go out and to research this Jesus. Once they did all the research, he became a believer. Both of them did, because the research in the Bible and the history just really got to their heart. And he went to his wife afterward, and he said, I've done all this research. I've now become a believer. What do I do with all this research I've done? She said, write a book. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. became Ben-Hur. Mm-hmm. Wow. When you think of the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille, the great uh, director, was not a Christian, but he came to this conclusion at the end of the movie. He said, you can't break the Ten Commandments. You can only break yourself against them. Mm-hmm. Oh. Great statement. Yeah, that's coming from that a, a, a person statement. who's not a believer. Yeah. Yeah, boy, Bill, what's one of your favorites? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, (laughs) 
Uh, I was just uh, thinking the other day of Les Miserables. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the the version with Liam Neeson in it. Mm-hmm. That one scene where he's caught by the police after having stolen from the bishop and they return him with his bag of things and the bishop still has a bloody nose. And he says, Jean Valjean, I'm so mad at you. Mm. You forgot the candlesticks. <laughs> <laughs> and he starts stuffing other things in the bag and says, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm buying you your freedom. Mm. Yeah, and, and the end of that, that movie, too, I think I saw the theater version of it first, but when he is getting ready to head into the heavenly kingdom and, and he's greeted by Fontaine and Eponine and, and they're talking about the chains will never bind you, I just I just wept with a man who just extended the grace that he received from that bishop right. in that moment, right? He made a lifetime of that, and I just, I, I remember seeing it and just thought, I don't know what's happening to me right now. I'm just weeping watching the end of this I, show. I was weeping when I watched it. Was he extending grace or mercy at the time? Mm. You know, it's pretty hard, biblically, to separate the two. That's what I thought. They go together. That's what I thought. I have to move on from Princess Bride to some of the <laughs> other deeper movies. Well, I haven't okay. seen that. Anybody want a it. peanut? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Uh, here's a question. Uh, Jesus calls us to become the disciples, but how do I be this disciple in my everyday life? Mm. You know, mm. I love the definition of a disciple, uh, of the, the learner. A disciple is really a learner. Um, so if you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and be a, a, a more faithful disciple of him, you got to become a learner. And I, I know that studying, reading, you know, really seeking the word of God is, is, is kind of one of these you know, passe kind of activities anymore. It's like, oh, Christianity has to be a lot more than that. You know what? I I have had so many God moments mm-hmm. in my own personal study time. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. And then I want to share it with other people. And that's what drives me. But I think in the end, a disciple is a learner. You need to devote yeah. yourself to the word of God and studying and understanding his word. That's how you'll know Christ. And, and, know, and the more you know him, the more you can trust him. Mm. And, and I would add to that, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's know what he says and do it. Yeah. It's the combination of the two always. One of the things I've tried to train people in is I've discipled, and I've been privileged to do that with a lot of people. It's not enough to know just what he says. When you get in those tough situations, the first thing you got to think of is, I represent Jesus. How do I behave like Jesus? How do I think and talk like Jesus in this situation? And in the early days, we'll all stumble. I mean, we'll all do a bad job. But once you begin and you consistently do that, then the word takes hold of you deep in your heart. And suddenly you find yourself being patient with people. You know, I I love the scripture passage. You know, I was hungry and you fed me. I was obnoxious and you put up with me. That's what it really means (laughs) to grow in discipleship Mm -hmm. to its fullest extent. Yeah, I, I read an article. I don't remember how many years ago, but it has stuck with me that if you could transplant yourself into that first century and walk alongside Jesus that to be a disciple the way they would have understood it back then is that over time, as you spend time with your rabbi or the one who is teaching you mm-hmm. as a learner, as you said, Jeff, that, that there would be three things that would begin to happen in you. You would begin to think or see the world the way that your rabbi thinks about the world or sees the world, just sort of naturally. That's how you go about your day. You would exercise the power and authority that your rabbi demonstrated, and you would also begin to grow in your inner character that was part of how your rabbi was just from the inside mm. out. And so I think, to you, I, I love what you said, Jeff, as we study the word, I just a really simple thing somebody could do, maybe take a week or a month, just stay within one passage where you read an anecdote or a parable or something Jesus did and say, huh, 
So how could I go from where I am right now to that kind of person that he demonstrated in those moments? What would be the resources required to do that? How would I grow in some of those ways? I think would be a great discipline. You know, it says your word is a lamp to my feet. It it guides us. It it directs us. It's, uh, you know, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's like, wow. You know, and if, if all you know is John 3, 16, that's the only thing you have hidden in your heart, right? You know, that sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, you're mm-hmm. going to be, you're. it's a battle out there, right? Mm-hmm. And every situation you come across isn't necessarily always John 3.16. You know, some other <laughs> passages that you hide in your heart just might help a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, and here's where we can add this all up. The devil knows the Word of God. Yes. He knows it better, quite frankly, than you and I do. But he doesn't believe it, he doesn't obey it, and he doesn't do it. And I think when we add those things to it, as as haphazardly as we do it and as bad as we do it, we're becoming more like Jesus. And that's the goal in this life until the day we meet him face-to-face. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll take a little break. Lots more guy talk around the corner. All you have to do is send over your questions, and we will talk about them. You can remain anonymous, of course, if you like, 877-933-2484. That's the text line, 877-933-2484. I also have an email address if you want to send an email. It's bill at myfaithradio.com. Be right back. for the show. <laughs> a little foggy mountain breakdown by Earl Scruggs. <laughs> anyway, welcome to Guy Talk, or guys who talk, they're doing a great job. Great questions coming in, keep them coming. 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, here's a question. I should reintroduce my panel. Jeff Verdorn, Peter Kapsner, Tom Parrish. All right, um, here's a question. Just wondering if the sacrifices in the temple stopped right after Christ's resurrection. Or was this only done with the true believers, Christ followers? Mm. The ones who didn't accept Christ's death kept on sacrificing? Mm-hmm. And do they uh, and do the unbelieving Jews still practice sacrificing to this day? Yeah, I mean, Jeff, we were just talking about this in the green room a little bit. There was the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD so clearly. And, and the central feature of the temple was the sacrificial system. And uh, so clearly there was some kind of sacrificing continuing because Jesus was just simply... In that time among Jewish people, he was seen as one teacher among many. Now, he made very different claims than a lot of the different teachers did, but he wasn't the only one who had disciples, and he wasn't the only one that had a way of life that he was saying was consistent with God's kingdom. There were a lot of other teachers in that day that were Jewish rabbis that continued to practice as if Jesus was one of the many false messiahs Mm. that had come along before him. Yeah, and we know that when Jesus died on the cross, one of the things that happened is when the earth shook in that Mm -hmm. moment, that curtain that covered the holy of holy place in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And I think that's a a powerful picture Mm -hmm. that God gives the world to say, hey, look, this old way of the sacrificial system is gone. I've now opened up a new way through faith in my son and the finished work of, of what he's done on the cross. And but 
I'm sure, and, and I don't know this historically, maybe you guys have read this someplace, but I'm sure sacrifices, the Jews continued to do sacrifice, sacrifices yep. in the temple. That whole economy, which was centered around temple worship and sacrifices, continued up until the point when that temple was destroyed. But we mm-hmm. know the New Testament reality, right? That Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. He w- was the, the went through not the earthly tabernacle, but the heavenly tabernacle and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So there is no longer a need for any sacrifice because Christ Christ was it. And Mm -hmm. an interesting question to ask a Jewish person today is, you know, how are your sins being forgiven? The the Bible says there's there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. So if they're not doing their sacrifices Mm. in the temple of God, how are you receiving that forgiveness from God? Yeah, and you think about it, the temple was destroyed by Titus in 70 AD. So we're looking at almost 2,000 years ago. There have not been sacrifices in the temple. But the book of Hebrews is very emphatic that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for sin. And I think 70 AD was got the Father's stamp of approval on that one because it ended and it hasn't come back. And Jeff, I'm so glad you read up about the, the veil being torn from top to bottom. Some of the, we just celebrated Pentecost. Uh, it was last weekend, right? Yep, it yeah, it was last weekend. And the Pentecost event was this moment <clears throat> in which the Spirit of God burst out among the people and they became the temple of the Holy Spirit instead. And so that that veil that was in the temple was, was a place in which God's presence resided. It had some of the holiest artifacts of Israel within the temple. It had the jar of manna. Um, it had the staff of Moses. Um, and it had an altar. Or Ten where, Commandments. Yeah, the Ten Commandments yep. as well. And, and, and the high priest could only go behind that veil once a year. And if the high priest went in and was found unworthy, they would literally drop dead in God's presence in that moment. And and so I, I don't know how many times that would have happened, but they eventually tied some bells around the waist of the high priest yeah. because if he dropped dead, then they could pull him out instead of running in. And then they would all keep dropping dead as they ran behind <laughs> the veil. So you think about like God's holiness in this moment. And then when, when the crucifixion event happened, that veil gets torn, and now God's holiness and his presence and his power and his beauty and his wonder uh, begins to dwell among his people. And it says that we are actually, like the collective we, the followers of Jesus, are now the temple of the Holy Spirit in whom God dwells. Those are pretty staggering statements when you think about yeah. like what, whatever a church is supposed to be. At least originally, it wasn't uh, just about a steeple and a sign and an organization and a hierarchy and a staff. It was the people following Jesus that collectively in whom the Spirit dwelt. That's a pretty powerful reality. Yeah, and what's interesting about that, and historically, just for the fun of it, when the priest would go in there, if he would drop dead and he had the bells on, they had also tied a rope around him because nobody else could go in there to drag right. him out. They had to pull him out by the rope because if they went in there, they would die too. Yeah, you can just imagine they were piled. Like how many? I just wonder how often did it happen before they figured out this system. Right? And, and now Hebrews, you mentioned Hebrews, yeah. goes on to say that Jesus is our high priest. Yes, he is. And that we can now come before his throne of grace with confidence we don't need to put bells on. We don't yeah. have to have ropes tied around our ankle. We can come before his throne of grace any time we want with confidence, knowing that we have re- have received that forgiveness that we talked mm-hmm. about earlier yep. today and, uh, and, and can come before God. I mean, that, that is such a radical concept mm-hmm. to the Jew who saw God behind this curtain only come... Uh, with blood sacrifice in hand, and and it's such a new concept mm. today that we can come before God anytime we want. Well, it's interesting. The Old Testament, the prophets and the, the Jewish people were looking for the imposition of the kingdom of God. When's the kingdom of God going to come? And the moment Jesus comes on the scene, he says, the kingdom of God is within you. 
you know, by faith in me is really what it comes down to, a whole radical new understanding of this. And I still don't think the world has caught on to it. Mm. I think even the church struggles with that understanding. But, but that, that's the truth. I that agree. sounds like good news when you guys are talking about it that way, doesn't it? I mean, that is good news yeah. gospel stuff there. Yeah. yeah. When we talk about the high priest only being able to enter the Holy of Holies once a year, that's just a thought I've had, and I've probably even mentioned it before on the show. Where or who witnessed the tearing of the veil from mm. top to bottom? Who well, would have Who would have witnessed that? And sure. If well, you remember the, the, ho- the priest would have come into the question. holy place daily. Of course. So there was a, the table of showbread, the altar right. of incense, and the menorah, and so the priest would have been in there daily. Now we don't know. I don't believe in this. It doesn't tell us if there was anybody in the holy mm-hmm. place at the time of the crucifixion right. that afternoon well, or then, not, but. They would have known soon enough uh, that. How it would had they know torn. if they come in and there's a, a, a torn veil? How would they would have said, "Ooh, I bet this ripped from top to bottom." Well, and they probably heard it. I, you know, it's a great question. We don't know don't if know. someone yeah. was there, but the the account in the gospel I know is accurate that it tore from top to bottom the moment Jesus died. Well, think about it. The temple was the most important structure in Jewish history. When you had this mammoth earthquake. All the high priests are going to run in there to take a look, see what's going on. And they're not going to go into Holy of Holies, but they're going to run into that ante room that came in there. And all of a sudden, now here's this curtain torn in half, and they're seeing the Ark of the Covenant. It was there. And it had to be so strange for them to to catch on to that. Yeah, I'm glad you're using the word curtain, too, because I think when we use the word veil, maybe our minds might go to sort of a translucent wedding bridal veil or something like that. That seems like it would be easy to... Tear, but I think that curtain was much more akin to a very thick Persian mm-hmm. carpet. And so the idea that that tore in, too, it, it had to come from supernatural it means. Did. Have you guys ever been to the tabernacle exhibit? There's a traveling exhibit that actually sets up exactly what the tabernacle would have looked like, and you go through a tour of it. And we it came to Eden Prairie here a while back, a mm. uh, local uh, place. And I, I got a question for you because I asked this question after we went through the tour. So you go into the Holy of Holies. They have the Ark of the Covenant there. And then the tour ends and you come out. Well, we, there's about 12 of us. I want to ask you this question. I asked him this. Okay, we find the Ark of the Covenant. Would you touch it? And I went around to each of them. Would you touch it? Would you touch the Ark? Would you touch the Ark I've of the Covenant? I've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. I wouldn't touch it. Would you, t- <laughs> would you touch the Ark of the Covenant? I would not be foolish to run up and put my hands on it, but I don't believe the Ark of the Covenant has any power anymore because that all transferred to the cross of Jesus. I agree. So I everybody went around. Virtually everybody said no, they wouldn't. Mm. And I, I don't know if you would or not, but... Well, it's too late now. Well, so. I know. I know but the I, answer. I, I, they went through and I, they came to me and said, well, what would you do? And I said, no, I would absolutely yeah. touch it. Yeah. We can come For before sure. his throne of grace. We have the God of the universe dwelling in us, something they didn't have in the Old Testament. And uh, that's where God dwelt. Now he dwells in you. You're talking about the new temple. We are the new temple. Yeah. So I said, yes. And one of my good friends raised their hand and said, I want to change my answer. <laughs> I, I, would, I would touch it. Right after you, touch <laughs> I like that. Just to see if you're still alive, That's right? Great. That's exactly. great. All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, lots more God talk. Let me know what the questions are you have for us. The power panel is Jeff Verdorn, Peter Kapsner, Tom Parrish. The number is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Lots more God talk is just around the corner. That's good.
afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Thanks for tuning into the show today. I'm glad you're with us. We've got the uh, Guide Talk Power Panel here. Tom Parrish, Peter Kapsner, Jeff Verdorn. Glad uh, to take your questions. Let me know what they are. 877-933-2484. All right, here's a question. And Tom Parrish, I'm already looking your direction. I just only say this because I know you've had a lot of experience um, with people at their time of death. Mm -hmm. So the question is, have you ever had anyone in your presence die and then the people start opening up the windows and the doors to let the spirits out? That happened to me this week. It was really strange. Whoa. Wow. No, I've never had that experience, but I know that is a common experience in the occult. It's a common experience. Uh, I'm part Native American. There are some Native Americans who kind of look at things that way. Um, It's an understanding of the spiritual world that you and I generally don't understand, although the spiritual world is real, but it's only real as the Bible describes it, not as I see people practice it. So I've never had that experience, and um, I would have a hard time dealing with that if somebody wanted to do that at that last moment. Yeah, good. We'll leave it at that then, right? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a good plan, yes. Yeah. What do you think are are some stumbling blocks for evangelizing today? Time. We don't give enough time to evangelize people. I mean, most of us know, look, we we study the Bible, and the Bible says that that, uh, it's the Holy Spirit that wakes us up spiritually. Mm -hmm. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us to faith. I don't always know the Holy Spirit's timing. And so when I'm witnessing to somebody... I may be two weeks ahead of time, you know, but I'm still going to witness because that's part of the planning and the seeding process that goes on. But when the, the Holy Spirit's going to finally touch that person, I don't know. I want to be as available as I can. And I think that availability is the key to it. But the exact timing, I never know. I think there's a couple reasons. I think people don't feel prepared or knowledgeable enough? What if I get a question that I don't know the answer to? What if someone says, well, why is there all this evil in the world? And they, you know, some questions that we should have answers to. Actually, Christianity has some very good sure. answers to these questions. But I, I think they, they lack just being prepared and having, always be prepared to give an account for that hope that is within you. And then I, I think the other thing is people don't feel worthy enough. They're going to talk about this righteousness and, and this Christianity and this, this Christ who came, and, and they don't feel like they're living it out very well, and maybe they just don't feel worthy. And then maybe, I don't know, laziness. I mm-hmm. think that's probably my biggest excuse. It's like you get on a plane, you should, I know I should be talking to the guy next to me, but it's like, oh, it's a long day, I'm just going to watch a movie or something, and, and you just get, you get lazy. So I think there's a lot of reasons why mm-hmm. we don't share, but mm-hmm. we have been called. Yeah. How hard is it to study the Bible? It's not as difficult as people think. We have resources galore. I mean, we've never, the world has never had resources like we have. So there are definitions of scriptural words. There's backgrounds of the whole thing. I think the the hard part for people is knowing where to begin and how to read the Bible. And I don't think as a church we've always done a good job of helping direct people in that process. Because you've got 66 books you know, and it's a big expanse, and I never tell people, well, start with Genesis, you know, and when you get done with those 39 books, give me a call. <laughs> uh, because I think that if you don't come into the encounter with Jesus very early in the process, the rest of it is hard to comprehend. What's this all talking about? So I think a lot of it is we got to go back, and especially with our youth, we have to teach them 
how to handle the Word of God, you know, study the Word of God, uh, and also slow down with it. I don't believe in reading through the Bible in a year. I don't see anywhere where there's a rush to get that done. I want to read through, if I read through one book thoroughly in a year and apply it, that's wonderful. Yeah, I think for the most part it is difficult. I agree. Uh, yeah, I think, and you know, it's been translated and retranslated faithfully, I would say, from different yeah. languages. Uh, but oftentimes there's concepts in the English language that just don't translate into Greek or Hebrew or whatever it is very readily. I think for people that are listening that know a foreign language, they even know that, that sometimes there's a word in French or in Spanish that just doesn't translate into English. So some of the concepts are hard, but I think the bigger thing that makes it really difficult is to keep in mind that the Bible was not written with us as the audience in mind. And so it was an entirely different kind of audience. Um, the, the entire Old Testament was compiled for the Jewish people to keep the story alive and the faithfulness of the story. And, and it was intended for Jewish culture and Jewish way of life and Jewish understanding um, that, that had gone from an oral tradition where they told stories generation after generation into when they finally had uh, enough material resources in the times of David and Solomon and beyond to be able to, to uh, write these things down on papyrus. So they were writing for a Jewish people. We're outsiders looking in at the mm-hmm. story. When Paul is writing his letters, he's writing to churches like people in Corinth that are living a very different kind of daily life than we're living in 21st century America, uh, or to a city uh, in, in, or to a church in Ephesus or to Galatia. The Gospels were written for a variety of different reasons to people of that time. So we are outsiders looking in. Now, just because it wasn't written with us in mind as the audience doesn't mean that we don't benefit from it and can't learn it and grow into it. But it's really helpful um, to recognize that it was being written in an entirely different kind of worldview. And it wasn't 21st century individualistic American worldview in the Bible. So it's really easy to read our own ideas into it because of it. You have to pull yourself out of your own 21st century context, somehow time machine back yourself into that context, and then you can understand what's there and why is it still meaningful and reliable today. It is transcendent in the sense that it applies to all cultures. But when right. you read it, uh, it doesn't. It, it's not being written to... France or China or Germany in the 21st century or America either. So to become a student of it is difficult. You know, one of the first principles of understanding scripture, hermeneutic principles, is context. And that context is always going to drive the meaning of the text. So there is a sense that you need to have that first century Jewish mind to understand really the, the, you know, the true meaning of, of the words. At the same time, with that said, I always approach scripture very simply, actually, and that is, is it's, I view it as God's letter to me, that he wrote it to me, the whole Bible from beginning to end. And I view it as God's voice. I know there was multiple different authors over 1,500 years and three different languages and so on, but I see it as God's voice written to me. And I think the biggest aspect of our understanding of the Word of God is the Spirit of God that is within us. I think Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture, and I think only through us having the Holy Spirit within us can we ever hope to really understand uh, the meaning of the words in, in that book. So I think every believer, like Acts 17 says, should be that Berean which searches the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul says, what you're hearing from us, from your pastor on radio, wherever, is true. Well, if if Paul commends them for searching the Scriptures to see if what he's saying is true, well, then I think God's commending us. Search the scriptures. I think the best Bible study is one where you study the Bible. Mm-hmm. Just do what it. What a revelation idea that uh, is. Isn't that? <laughs> study the word of God. He will teach you, I promise. 
You know, it's interesting oh. because our grandsons, I have two just graduated. One thing I uh, want them to have, and I have gotten it for them, was the ESV Study Bible. That's one thing. But today, whether you have an Android phone or an iPhone, you can get a hundred translations if you want to. And the advantages on many of them now, if you put your finger on a particular word like grace, it will pop up the Greek or the Hebrew and give you multiple understandings of what that could mean in that context. I wish I would have had that in seminary. It would have made life a lot easier. I had to go to the library and find these books and stuff. Now you can do it on your phone. And so in that sense, uh, Westerners who have these tools, we don't have an excuse anymore. We don't. Yeah, I think a good example, you guys, just from 1 Corinthians 11 for for a reference point, there's just this passage that says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But what if a woman has long hair? It's her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. What what in the world does that pass? I mean, I think there's a, a couple comments we should make about that passage. Number one, we have to be very careful to recognize that all Scripture is God-breathed, and there aren't God-breathed verses on steroids versus other ones. We've we've ripped out John 3.16 or maybe Romans 3.23 or some of these passages. That passage that I just read that is so confusing about the head coverings and women and long hair is as God breathed as John three sixteen, and, and it's an incredible study when you look back in history. Why did we rip out the ones that we did and made steering wheel verses out of them versus some of these passages that are equally important? And then the second part of it is, what was Paul talking about to this church in Corinth right now? What was going on? How do we understand that? Could we somehow transport ourselves into that church setting to better understand what was going on and what might we learn about kingdom life from, from that time? I, I know I've told this story before, but when I when I had a hermeneutics course, the course that you referenced, Jeff, hermeneutics just means the study of how to get into the word uh, in a more reliable way. I didn't know any of this stuff, but but when I had the class on it, I think my prof was about 175 years old, and it, and it was it was a four hour class on a Monday night. It couldn't have been worse timing. Six o'clock to ten o'clock, we were sitting in these elevated chairs. He was down in this pit. Uh, he had loose leaf notes in front of him. He didn't use a PowerPoint. He didn't use a projector. He didn't use anything, just loose leaf notes. And he just, and he never even really looked up at us one page after another, he just turned, but it was the most riveting class that ever partaken because every time he turned a page, I felt like he was jangling a key about how to help better get into God's word. And, and Parrish, you said it uh, earlier, there's a ton of resources out there that are very accessible to people about maybe how to read the Bible for all it's worth or uh, any number of books that help jangle those keys for us so that we can become students of the scriptures ourselves too. I, I just can't emphasize enough to not build your faith around 10 verses of scripture that seem the most important because all of it is God breathed. Absolutely. And, and I would love to just see a church that was birthed out of this hair covering passage. Like what would that <laughs> church look like? Uh, and, and I'm not saying we do. All, it, all the guys just would have short hair, by we the way. Be, indeed. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. It's, it's nerve wracking when you say that, because apart from Rosie behind the screen here, running the board, I've got the longest hair of all the men here. <laughs> yeah. So I've got to repeat really that too. one. Yes. <laughs> so how, I got hair. How do you deal with rejection? You know, Jeff, you were just talking about being on a plane, being tired, looking at the guy next to you, thinking, do I have the energy to want to talk? It might get into a conversation. It might lead to a discussion on faith. Or it's been a long day. I wouldn't mind putting on the headphones and watching a movie. Now, let's say you do have that conversation and you 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 have a dialogue and he pretty much just sort of says you're kind of a kook. Uh, I've been called a kook, a, a Bible thumper, a Jesus freak, uh, uh-huh. all the rest. 
It, it's They're compliments, the, by the it's, way. Yeah, the, I, you wear them as a badge <laughs> of honor, right? You know, I love that passage in Acts where it says, and the disciples went away rejoicing because they felt worthy to be persecuted for his name. I think I have it right, or something like that. They were rejoicing mm-hmm. because they were persecuted because of the name of Jesus. Quick story, I was at a sideline of a soccer game where my kids were playing, you know, youth soccer. And I started talking to this woman. She was reading the Da Vinci Code, and there's terrible history. It's a it's a, a fictitious story. If you don't know, it's made up. It's there's nothing true about it. If Jesus went away and had a baby with Mary Magdalene, then he didn't die on the cross and rise again. And Christianity is all for naught. All right, that's kind of the sum. So we started having a conversation <laughs> about this, right? Well, we started talking about the Old Testament, pointing to the New, and how this couldn't be true, and so on. Well, she finally takes her chair and kind of scooches it away from me and says, "You know, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it." <laughs> and I'm thinking, "Oh man, that was a failure." <laughs> and I'm standing there watching my kids play soccer, and this guy walks up next to me, and he says, "I was really interested." In what you were wow. saying, I grew up Jewish. You obviously know the Old Testament. I, you know, basically said, I want to hear more. And I thought, oh, in this failure, my true audience wasn't this woman. It was this guy that I didn't mm-hmm. know anything about. And we ended up having this nice 15-minute conversation about, about the Lord. I've been rejected a lot. And it's just part of the job. You know? <laughs> Not something you imagine you'd say well, about, right? Junior high dances, I'm rejected yeah, a lot. Yes. But when I'm witnessing to people, however, here's what's interesting. Uh, I've had people actually get angry at me. But years later, years later, I will have somebody text me or call me and say, do you remember me? No, not really. But, yeah, I, I, we talk about it. They say, what you said that day bugged me so bad that the last couple of years I've been researching this, and I want you to know I've now become a Christian, and I want to thank you for doing this. So the rejection is, is a normal part of the witnessing process, but we don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to do with that. And if we don't witness, then the Holy Spirit doesn't have anything to cling on to and work with. Who's the guy that says, my job is to put a pebble into people's shoes that just bug them and they can't get them out? I can't remember who that is. Yeah, I try to put bowling balls in, but it doesn't (laughs) work often. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, more Guy Talk. Let me know what the questions are that you have for us. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Well, all of a sudden, we're at a nightclub. Why not? That was beautiful jazz. Last call. Yeah, it is last call. We just got one segment left of Guy Talk, and we would love your questions. So just text them over 877 933 2484. So I just got a nice compliment. I love the Guy Talk program. You guys touch on so many of the questions that I have about my faith. Mm. That's nice. That's really nice. Powerful. It's really nice. All right, here's a question that came in. Let's see. Um, is there a common agreement among theologians on the style of writing used in each book of the Bible? There is an agreement as to the style in most cases, whether it's poetry, whether it's apocalyptic, whether it's narrative. There isn't a common understanding. That's about the best way I can put it. So each each theologian or each denomination has kind of interpreted it their own way, and that's why you wind up with... Uh, kind of a difference in understanding of the word. 
there is a common understanding, and I really wish more theologians, more pastors, more lay people would come together and talk about these things in a forum where they really talk about what does it really, what does apocalyptic literature really mean? How do we apply that today? And it is applicable, but how do you do it? What about poetry? How do you take poetry and apply it to your life today? Because those two things are wonderful, but they're not the same as the narrative when Jesus says something you know, about forgive your enemies. So we have to understand that and put that together, but there is no common understanding in practice. I do think it's a really helpful thing to learn, though, as one of the, when we talked about hermeneutics in that last segment or the ability to sort of get into the, the Scripture, just to recognize that it is not all narrative or historical right. account. Some of it is being written in poetry. Some of it is prophecy. Uh, some of it, like even parables, have their own sort of ways in which they they tend to have a central p- uh, point around which they're circling. And so, I think just to pick up a book or do some research online and just it, plug in maybe the term literary genre or literary category of scripture will help you get into them a little bit more to understand how they're being written and why. Agreed. All right, here's a question. How do I help my husband be more vulnerable? He's a fireman, so naturally his job doesn't always allow him to deal with the pressures. As his wife of seven years, I'm always praying for his heart to soften in all areas of his life. He is actually a very caring and nice guy, just always feels like he needs to be a tough guy and admits his heart is callous. What I'd love for him to do is come sit in on Guy Talk someday, and we would... That'd be a blast. He'd be welcome. Oh, yeah, we'd... yeah. I think a lot of it for this wife, I would say, is, and it's hard, spend a lot of time really listening to what he's saying. And when he talks, reflect back what he's really saying and feeling. Because with as after all my years of counseling, nobody ever starts out with a real problem when they come for counseling. They, they have other problems or, you know, this isn't, my wife isn't doing this or that. But when you let them talk long enough, it's amazing how they begin to filter out those things and get to the real issue. But a lot of it is you've got to keep encouraging them to talk. And so that's why a lot of my time is spent with, you know, listening to what they're saying, reflecting back appropriately and talking about their feelings. And sooner or later, they get to the real topic. And I think this gentleman, the firefighter, maybe has never had that opportunity. He's been taught, you know, you hold it in, you don't let it out. But the tough guy, Veneer, and I've known a lot of tough guys, I've been in sports, I've been around this all my life. Most of the tough guy veneers are simply a veneer for something very soft underneath, but they don't know how to deal with it, and they don't know who to talk to about it. So this wife has a great opportunity. I encourage you to spend more time listening, reflecting back what he's saying, and let the Holy Spirit open his heart. I also think men make other men better, too. They do. And I think it's important that you have other male fellowship that you're having discussions with other than news, sports, and weather. Can I just ask the question, maybe just throw this on the table, is vulnerability a good characteristic for a guy? In other words, she said he, she wants him to be more vulnerable. I, you know, I, I search through the scriptures. I don't find that admonition in scripture to be vulnerable. I, I get what you're saying. I think the root of it is, do you have a facade that you're putting sure. in front of you? And maybe that's what she's describing. But I don't know that vulnerability, is that a positive aspect or, or not? I want to be real. I want to be genuine. I, I can show strength. And uh, but if it's describing kind of a false veneer, then maybe that's yeah. the that's the argument that she's talking about, but not necessarily vulnerability. You see what I'm saying? 
I, I do. I know that there's some biological studies done too, where oftentimes vulnerability is tied in with emotions on some level. And emotions are really good. Like I think one of the great disservices that we've done um, to men and women together is to suggest that you have to take the emotion out of a decision in order for that decision to be reliable. Some of the more recent studies from Harvard and some other places have said, no, the the, the best organizations account for the emotions in the room and figure out how to order them. But but like logic and reason, which tends to be a little bit more of a male approach to life mm-hmm. um, and, and emotionality, which tends to be a little bit more feminine, even like the female brain um, is processing the world through emotions. They can track that biologically. And, and, uh, and so to take the emotion out of a decision means that you're basically taking the female out of the decision is, is how that gets rendered. And I think that's terribly unfortunate. Um, but on the, on the flips, and, and so logic and rationality is no more reliable than emotions. They can both be terribly unreliable, and they can be totally reliable. God was filled with emotion all throughout the text. I mean, it was emotion that caused God to move and to open up the heavens and, and dwell among us. It wasn't his theology that caused him to do it. Right. It was his love for the world. So I think we have to be very careful. But on the flip side, I think, Jeff, of what you're saying is that I think sometimes um, people are asking men to do things that men um, just maybe are not terribly interested in doing. I, I don't have as much emotion. I have a plenty of emotion in my life, but if my vulnerability has to be reflected in how emotional about something that I am or how long I might talk about something, they, they did a study. Men on average use about 6,000 words per day and women on average use about 20,000 words per day. Those are both really good things, but I think she just has to not um, expect him to interact the way she thinks he should interact. And so vulnerability can look in a lot of different ways, I think, is the point here. More than anything, to your point, though, Parrish, I think when he does start speaking what's going on internally inside of him, in any context, male or female, it needs to be greeted um, very gently when the first time somebody decides to hazard and and put their their thoughts and emotions in somebody else's trust. See, it's different in the locker room. There's a lot there. Because I coached football for several years and soccer and those things. In a locker room with a bunch of guys, nobody says, well, Jeff and Peter, are you vulnerable to your own character and what I want to tell That's you? That's kind of my question. They, they would never yeah. say that. What they'll say is, Jeff, it's time to get gut-level honest. It's time you really look at what you're doing and understand how it's affecting the other people here. Now, it's hard in a marriage to do that. I'm not looking for confrontation all the time and whatever else. So I think the doorway that I encourage is really listening. And I think most men, when they really get down to it and they feel safe, they feel they're cared about, they feel that somebody's honestly listening. Some of them will get to gut level honesty, but it's very hard to get them there unless, forgive me, you're in a locker room and you got guys gathered around you. I think the the for me, the, my best male role model is Paul. Paul says, be imitators of me just as I'm an imitator of Christ. Yep. And it's like, okay, you want an understanding of manliness, right? I, I look to Paul. I look to Christ. And, and uh, yeah, so... I think that's the role of a man. So I, I, your words that you just said sounded much more like Paul to me, you know, that I, you need to be more vulnerable. That just doesn't sound like Paul. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I sat around a, a bonfire a couple of nights ago with about five or six other people, some of them in ministry, some not all men. And it, and it did sound much more like that. There was a vulnerability being expressed. Guys were talking about things yeah, that mattered to I them, agree. things that they were wrestling down, things that they were concerned with. But, but it was kind of surrounded by a bit of teasing sometimes. It was surrounded oh, yeah. by, you know, with you? No well, way. Nice. Yeah, shocking <laughs> development, I know. But it, it, just, it just sounds different somehow. And so I think that just to be mindful that there are genuine differences between men and women and how they approach vulnerability. And he also, uh, she also said in the, in the text that he feels like he needs to be the tough guy and admits his heart is callous. So if you have a callous heart, 
probably you're you're feeling a little numb about things That's and there's fair. again there's something underneath yeah. that callus that maybe has not been dealt with and that's a tough place too because it sounds like she wants to actually know her husband better, right? That's I want fair. to know yeah. you better. So you're going to need to tell me more about your feelings. A technique I learned in counseling years ago is I'd have people come to me and talk to me and they tell me the problem but the men wouldn't be forthright about it. I learned I had to tell a story about myself and about my own vulnerability or gut level honesty, and it usually opened up the guys. But until I did it and said, let me tell you how I really messed up in my life and how I made mistakes, but what the Lord did, it wouldn't work. Good word. That's yeah. good word. It's all good. We have a bunch more questions, but it looks like we're out of time. Oh. <laughs> but, you know, but you do that, save those. You save those for I, future shows. I do save them, yeah. but then you always hope that the person that sent the questions over would be listening again. Otherwise, they're not going to hear their question. Well, and I think that last conversation too, Bill, that we just had, that that we could definitely have another 15 minutes on that about mm-hmm. just what you just said about a calloused heart. Yeah. Like I think a lot of guys are, have experienced a, a fair amount of pain in their life and it has been calloused over and they don't know what to do with it from there. So I think that would be a, a wonderful topic to return yeah, to. Yeah, because vulnerability has, uh, you know, so it's got so many dimensions to that word. Yeah. I mean, for example, uh, I've cried twice today. So am I, was I vulnerable? Mm-hmm. I think I was. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I got blindsided by something that... It was so, uh, it was so moving mm-hmm. that I thought, well, I guess I'm being vulnerable. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I got Who cried when old Yeller died? Not me. <laughs> 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 okay. You walked into that one, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> Another movie line. Yeah. Sorry. All right. Thanks for being here. Always great Good to, to have you. Good to be with you. Yeah, see you guys. This is a lot of fun. All right, that's it for Guy Talk. Uh, so you can always send your questions over. You don't have to wait for Thursday to do it. Send them anytime. We'll take a break, and then the wonderful and amazing Becky Pippert is next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.